0: You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern
1: on Bloomberg.com,
0: the iHeartRadio app, and the
1: Bloomberg Business app.
0: Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. This week, we look at questions about COVID. Why are some people more at risk than others? Why are some people struggling with long COVID while others remain asymptomatic? New research shows the answer could be in our genes. And then we talk about the Supreme Court decision impacting affirmative action on college campuses. How could this apply to your workplace? There are some who argue that white men face a hiring disadvantage. We'll check those numbers. And then a look at the oppressive heat that most of the country and the world is going through. Oceans near Florida are topping 100 degrees Hospitals are resorting to ice-filled body bags to lower patients' temperatures. Where is this coming from? And have we reached a climate change tipping point? But we begin with El Salvador. The Central American country has the second lowest homicide rate in the region. But at what cost? In May of last year, more than 71,000 Salvadorans were behind bars. That's more than 1% of the population. Let's talk about this with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Eduardo Porter. Eduardo covers Latin America, U.S. economic policy and immigration and joins us now. Let's just start from the beginning. Is this a human rights issue?
1: Well, yes, indeed it is. Um, the the mass imprisonment of a large share of your population uh, involves and has involved in the case of Salvador a lot of wrongful imprisonment, uh, you know, people that are just being swept up in massive raids uh, and abuses of prisoners that some, in some cases have led to prisoners dying. And so, yes, clearly this is a human rights problem. So, but is it working, though? Well, if you mean reduce, if, if working means reducing crime, well, yes, it has reduced crime. And that's what's made it so politically popular, because El Salvador was a country that has been crime ridden for years and years and years. And, um, and murder rates have come down really drastically over the past few years. So, yes, if, if, if that's your measure of success, and I understand why many people see it as thus, um, yes, it's been
2: successful. On the other hand, though, you may wind up sweeping innocent people into that net when they go out and and round people up.
1: You sweep people into the net, you abuse these people's rights, you lose any sense of accountability in society because the forces of repression you know, the police and military, basically don't have to answer to anybody as long as they're putting a bunch of people in jail. Um, and, And that is not very compatible with democracy, actually, because you need accountability in a democracy. You need respect for basic civil rights. And that's what suffers.
2: You mentioned that Salvadorans, for the most part, like it, that this is politically popular. But is this what they had in mind? Is this what they wanted? Well, you know, I guess
1: you, the answer is the first order answer is yes. I mean, if, if Bukele is so popular that they, he's going to run for president again, even though his constitution, the Salvadorian constitution, says you can't run twice in a row. Um, and it's just to point out, this isn't popular just in El Salvador. People from other bits of Latin America are looking at El Salvador and liking it. And liking the reduction in violence. and And, you know, so you have politicians in other countries in Ecuador, for instance, in Honduras that are that are, you know, trying or talking about trying something similar.
2: that leads me to my next question then. How bad was it uh, in El Salvador if this seems to be a viable answer and this seems to be more politically popular, this more draconian and dramatic step?
1: Well, just, I mean, a sense of how bad it was in, in the year 2015, the murder rate in, in El Salvador topped 100 per 100,000 people in the population. So it's one out of every thousand people in Salvador were killed in 2015. So that's a lot of murder. That's a lot of homicide, and that um, it was the highest in Central America, and I'm guessing it probably the highest in the hemisphere, Uh, and if not, one of the highest in the world. And so, uh, the the Bukele strategy has brought it down to where last last year the murder rate was seven point eight per 100,000 Salvadorans. So he brought it down by more than a factor of 10 times. I mean, it's, you know, it's just 7.8% of what it was in 2015. So that's kind of like the measure of the change that most people see in their lives. So now streets that used to be like war zones where you couldn't send your kid out to play in the yard or anything, well now you've got kids playing in the yard and families doing picnics and stuff like that, you know. So there has been a change and hence the political popularity of the, of the strategy Let's talk about the sustainability
2: of this. They can't keep this up, can they? This very iron fist
1: take on crime. It's hard for me to say how long because there's been regimes where this kind of policy has been sustained for a very long time. I'm thinking of the Philippines under Rodrigo Duterte or Paul Kagame uh, in Rwanda, uh, where, where, you know, iron fisted policies have have continued for many, many years now.
2: But those are countries you don't necessarily want to be compared to.
1: Yeah, but I don't think you wanted to be compared to El Salvador, you know, in the last few years. I mean, it, the level of violence in this country was also intense. And so um, um I guess it all it depends on what the political, uh, uh, what the political response is, I would agree that right, right now, about 1% of the Salvadoran population is in prison. That's a huge, it's like one out of every 100 people imagine that in the United States, for instance, one out of every every 100 people in, in, in prison. Now. I find it very difficult to contemplate how you can sustain that over time. And especially if you feel you have to ramp up from there. Where where do you get to? 2% of the population? I mean, these are enormous, insanely large numbers. And if they come with the kinds of abuses that leads to death and so forth, I think the political pressure, uh, uh, the political argument might change if people start perceiving, perceiving themselves vulnerable. I think the people that saw themselves at risk from the crime and and the gangs in the streets that are now happy that they can that the streets are no longer a war zone might turn a little bit le- you know um- it might turn somewhat against the policy if they perceive the cost that this might bring, and that you know their kid may be vulnerable to being being caught up in a raid and put in jail because he was out at the wrong time at the wrong place. You know these kinds of, uh, of 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 consequences that come with the iron fist sort of policy. So I mean, in the end of the day, it's hard to say how sustainable these things are, and I also think it depends on what else you can bring to the conversation what other strategies you can put there you know to compete with this the seeming success of this one right is there another way is there a more sort of like democratic less uh, at risk of abusing human rights less you know, less violent strategy, if you will, to bring secure, to peace and security to the streets.
2: That's exactly what I was going to ask you about. If there are any other options, either on the table there that they would be considering, or that human rights groups might be trying to pitch to them. What else is out there that
1: would work? Well- well, look. I mean, let's go to like the total leather extreme uh, end of the table, like you know, Scandinavia or whatnot. You can have societies with you know with low levels of crime and no human rights abuses, and you know where you don't put up one percent of your population in prison. So that it is possible to have another kind of equilibrium. Certainly, it is, and that's what one should aspire for. Now, in countries like El Salvador uh, and Honduras and maybe Ecuador and Um, um, The the draw of these very, very authoritarian iron fisted policies, I think, come also because they don't see anything else on the table that seems to work, you know, and but I I do think that it behooves us that might, you know, that might kind of like be a little bit. Uh, appalled at the level of violence in policies like the one in El Salvador to come up with with new with new ideas and I do think that new ideas will require setting up very strong justice systems where that can adjudicate you know crime from innocence you know that and do that can give people due process I mean these sorts of uh of, of Justice kind of reforms I think are very important and these countries countries like El Salvador are countries where uh, not, 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 uh, um, uh, and this is not a coincidence. Countries in where these justice systems are very weak, or due process is not always to be had, where you know corruption is very is very high, and so yeah, reducing corruption and, and creating a more functional justice system with due process, I think, is an essential path uh, to a different kind of of criminal justice system that might be that might be less violent and also successful.
2: The size of the country or the wealth of the country, would those be factors?
1: I would answer yes. Um, You know, Salvador is a very, very small country. You know, putting, um, if if you think of it, let's say, consider Mexico, another very violent country, putting 1% of the population in a country of 130 million people <laughs> requires really, really a lot of investment in prisons. I mean, so it's it just the numbers just become too mind-boggling to consider. And it's also a country with like 200 criminal groups. So the, when the problem is more complex, so I, I think that there is an issue of size that allows this to work in El Salvador, that it wouldn't work in a bigger country like Mexico or Brazil or Argentina.
2: All right. We're going to have to leave it there for now, Eduardo. Eduardo Porter, a Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering Latin America, U.S. economic policy and immigration. And he is the author of American Poison, How Racial Hostility Destroyed Our Promise and The Price of Everything. Coming up, we're going to ask why a COVID infection may hit people so differently. Some barely get the sniffles, others are just flattened. We'll look at new discoveries in genetic research. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion.
0: You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
2: You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. And even as COVID becomes more like background noise for the rest of us, there are still a lot of unanswered questions. Why does one family member suffer a hacking cough? Another might not even have a sniffle. Why does long COVID affect some people and not others? Why are some people flattened, even if they're vaccinated, with fatigue and exhaustion, while others are just able to push right on through? There's a cluster of new studies suggesting some of the answers might be genetic. Bloomberg opinion columnist Lisa Jarvis covers biotech, healthcare, and the pharmaceutical industry, and she joins me now. Lisa, always a pleasure. Let's talk about this. Mild cases, asymptomatic infections of COVID haven't really been studied like some of the sickest patients in the hospital. Um, So my first question is, why not? And secondly, um, how does that skew maybe what we thought we knew?
3: Right. Well, the first question, why haven't they been studied? Part of it is those are much harder people to study. So if you have a severe case of COVID and you're in the hospital, we've got you in the system and <laughs> we can collect samples, we can analyze those things. But if you have a mild case, you may not even report it to your doctor. And so it's harder to track and get in, in particular genetic information from you. And so um, one of the things that people have been able to do um, in order to get around that is use the bone marrow registry. Um, that is a place where people have already signed up, they've already handed over their genetic data, and that has allowed researchers to get at some of these questions around what's going on with asymptomatic or mild COVID.
2: So have we, now that we've been able to study that group, have we been able to learn more about how COVID behaves, or or did it show us that how, how much we didn't know already?
3: Right. Well, I think the thing that came out of that is that, you know, essentially, maybe I'll just describe what the researchers did, which is that they had people download an app and they reported their symptoms if they tested positive. This was before we were all vaccinated, which is important because once you get vaccinated, it kind of complicates how you would interpret the data. And they found that people with one copy of a certain gene were two times as likely to be asymptomatic and people with two copies were eight times as likely to be asymptomatic. And another thing they found was that essentially these genes that uh, like increase your chances of being asymptomatic have to do with um, proteins that show your immune system little bits of viruses or bacteria or fungi to let them know that that's a foreign invader and if they had these genes and had been exposed to a common cold they were much more likely to be asymptomatic so what it's teaching us essentially is that we kind of there's some background information that you might be getting if you had a garden variety cold and you had these genes and your t cells which have a long kind of memory uh remember how to recognize them and do a good job of shutting it down that's important both for understanding how our immune spawn responds our our immune system responds, but also for how we think about designing vaccines, how we think about designing future treatments, whether it's for COVID or another virus.
2: I want to get into that in a second, but a quick question you just made me think of. So genetics, theoretically, depending on what our gene makeup is, could help us fight off this virus and other viruses as well. It depends on what our gene makeup is. But then isn't there a flip side to that coin where genetics might also allow covid to linger into long COVID, is that also part of the genetic makeup?
3: That's right. So we're seeing a few new studies, and these are all preprints, which means they haven't been peer-reviewed yet. But I think there's a growing collection of studies that's starting to point to certain genes that increase your susceptibility for long COVID. Um, The researchers that found one of these genes, FOXP4, um, that gene had already been shown to increase your chances of having severe COVID. And actually, your risk, it increases your risk more for long COVID. And that that's a a gene that has to do with um, your lungs, it's found in your lungs. And, um, you know, I think all of that, again, helps us think about, you know, what is the virus doing? um, Once it enters your body? How is our immune system responding? And how do we design treatments and vaccines to combat that?
2: And we are talking with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Lisa Jarvis about why COVID seems to hit some of us harder than others, and it's all about the genes. So, Lisa, this research just the beginning, and you alluded to this earlier that this can go some pretty amazing places. Are we thinking about maybe preventives or new vaccines? What's the end game? Do we have one?
3: Well, I think you know, first, let's hope that we keep pushing on better (laughs) treatments and vaccines. That's a challenge, but. One thing that the the asymptomatic study teaches us is that it turns out our T cells, those memory cells that kind of um, swoop in and shut down uh, you from having symptoms, could be an important thing to target with the vaccine. We've been our current vaccines target the antibodies that we make and try to get our immune system to remember how to make antibodies against COVID. That's sort of your front line that prevents you, in theory, from getting the virus at all. But maybe we just get the virus, but our immune system knows really well how to shut it down afterwards and we activate these T cells. So could be a different strategy. People are working on that, but I think it could point to that's something we should make a further investment in. Sort of like an immunotherapy? I I mean, all of the vaccines are doing that, but this would be um, essentially, instead of targeting our antibodies, it would be targeting our T cells, um, which just acts, they, they don't, They don't operate um, to prevent the virus from infecting our cells. They operate after the virus has infected our cells and would quickly swoop in and shut it down.
2: I see. I see. Gosh, this is this is an incredible body of research. And it's interesting to see how genetics research is leading into all of this. Could researchers use what they learn here based on COVID-19 and all that comes with it? to maybe create other vaccines for other illnesses can they discover more as they open these genetic doors just with covid-19
3: yeah i mean i think one thing that's important about this research is that it is highlighting how important uh our genes could be and our susceptibility to viruses in general. And we have some other evidence um, pointing to that in other diseases, but it hasn't always gotten a ton of attention. And so I think one thing that could happen is this, Helps people recognize, hey, this is a field that matters. We should continue to invest in it and pursue it because it turns out that you know it teaches us a lot about you know not just our susceptibility, but how viruses work and how our immune systems respond to them.
2: To that end, though, was there in your research and when what you wrote for the Bloomberg Terminal? Is there any pushback against this type of research? Remember, there was so much division over COVID anyway. I mean, even just wearing a mask, whether to wear one or not. Was something on this level, would this also create pushback?
3: You know, I think there's two sides to that coin. One is people who say like, well, whatever, I have this gene, what am I going to do about it? Right. But I do think it could help a doctor understand, like, if you're someone susceptible to severe COVID and could be hospitalized, you might want to know that and take precautions if there's a big outbreak. But the second thing um, is that, um, you know, to me, I think it actually points to the opposite side. Like, A lot of people make the argument like, well, COVID's not a big deal. I didn't get sick. You know, well, it turns out maybe your genes helped you and you don't know if you are one of those people or not. So I think in some ways it kind of helps explain some of the arguments people were using against COVID being, you know, us needing to kind of put a lot of precautions in place that we do have variability in our susceptibility to the virus. And that's why some people didn't get sick and others did.
2: Lisa, thank you. It is so cool to see this research in action. And your column on the Bloomberg Terminal really does just lay it all out for us and helps it all make sense, even for a layperson like myself. We really appreciate you joining us today. Oh, thank you so much, Amy. (laughs) Bloomberg Opinion columnist Lisa Jarvis covers biotech, healthcare, and the pharmaceutical industry. And don't forget, we're available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Coming up, how the Supreme Court decision on affirmative action could have an impact beyond college campuses, like in your office. This is Bloomberg Opinion.
0: You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
2: This is Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. A recent Supreme Court decision on affirmative action specifically addressed college admissions, but there are also arguments that it could have broader implications. There is also a casual assertion by some that there is a racial bias against white men in hiring practices. The data doesn't necessarily support that. So we want to jump right into that. Catherine Ann Edwards is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, a labor economist, and an independent policy consultant. She joins us now to straighten us all out. It has been the conventional wisdom that being a white man makes it harder to get hired. Where does that assertion come from? And compare that to what the reality is, what the statistics show us.
4: I think the most important thing is that it should be our North Star to lead with empathy and when you don't get a job or you don't get a promotion, that stings, and this is not to negate that experience or to minimize, you know, what people went through when they didn't get something, but more to provide the context that the labor market would offer some pretty heavy skepticism that white men face any disadvantage. So, probably the, the most palpable evidence of this, and I think the the broadest, is that the unemployment rate for white men is lower than the unemployment rate for black men, but it goes a lot deeper than that. Black men are treated the same by the labor market as white men who have less education, so the unemployment rate for a black college graduate is the same as the unemployment rate of a white high school graduate. The unemployment rate of a black high school graduate is the same as a white high school graduate dropout. We call this a stepwise reduction in the labor market. And it's not a real mystery where it comes from. Black men are deeply, deeply discriminated against in hiring. And there is ample evidence for it that has been consistent over decades. And no study has ever found discrimination against white men.
2: I want to get into something that you just said. You were talking about the comparisons between having an education and not coupled with a person's race. You actually found more of a definitive link, not necessarily with being white or with being black, but with being educated that's where the definitive link is and then when you overlay the race factor on top of it that's where you really see the difference
4: education lowers unemployment so the more education you have the lower your unemployment rate because the more successful you are in the labor market and that's true both if you look at all workers in the economy or if you look within groups so just black men Black men with an advanced degree, black men who are lawyers or who have an MBA, they have a lower unemployment rate than black men with a high school degree or no degree. The problem in our labor market is that the discrimination against black men means that they don't get the same type of labor market protection or benefits from their degree that white men do because they're discriminated against. And so there's this kind of, you know, almost like penalty, the black penalty is equivalent to a degree. So that you you basically like lose a degree of education for being black. That you know, not, not that that's the actual process, but just that the discrimination against black men basically takes the protection that a higher degree should give them and erodes it so that they're basically treated in a labor market, not necessarily in like a microcosm decision of the hiring decision, but in overall in the labor market, they should have unemployment rate that is much lower given their education but not. Right. So it's not to say that someone you know, with two resumes in front of them says, oh, well, this guy, this black guy went to college, but that doesn't count because he's black. It doesn't work like that. It's just that the racism towards black men in the labor market re- increases their unemployment rate above what their education would predict.
2: Also, I want you to clarify something else for me with all of the research that you've done, if you don't mind. The gap that may or may not persist between black and white hiring practices. The way it was explained to me once was it's not that a person of color will automatically be chosen and show, shown favoritism over a person who may be white when they're in the hiring practice head-to-head, right, when they're going through the system head-to-head. It's more of a an opportunity for for companies or universities or whatever to expand the pool, right? So it's not so much a white person versus a black person head to head for a job as much as it's let's make the pool bigger and pick the most qualified people from that pool. That's how it was explained to me. Is that accurate or is that um, uh, aspirational? Well,
4: I think there's a lot that goes on in the hiring process that people don't say and don't realize and so what like what the intentions are to say well we just want to increase the hiring pool I mean that's what they say but we don't know what's happening so one thing that economists do it's closest to a controlled experiment that really economists have in the real world is they do something called audit studies where they compile resumes that are fake, and they send out hundreds and thousands of them to employers in response to job ads, and they measure the callback rate. So these these resumes are character for character identical, right, there's no education difference, the GPA is the same, all the experience is word for word identical, but they switch the name at the top to sound black or white. So the the paper that was done on this in the early 2000s is Emily and Greg versus Lakeisha and Jamal. Simply having a Black-sounding name on an otherwise identical resume reduces the callback rate for jobs by about 50%. Now, is that because someone's throwing the Black name out of the pile or because it triggers some, you know, very latent racial bias in how they assess resumes? And it applies to women as well, but something is happening in the hiring process that through hundreds of studies and thousands and thousands of resumes, there has been no change in 30 years. Black people are called back at about half the rate.
2: Okay, so you're hired. Do these biases also exist in salaries and wages?
4: Yes. So black workers with a college degree, on average, make about 20% less than white workers with a college degree. So same education, much less pay. There's lots of mechanisms that labor economists have identified to explain this. One of them is occupational crowding. You know, if it's harder for you to get a job, you're more likely to take one that you're overqualified for. And if that happens enough for an entire group, like all of black men with a college degree, you know, they, they end up, you know, su- suppressing their own wages because of the jobs that they took. And they took those jobs because it's harder for them to find one. And all of this has a direct through line. You're discriminated against in the hiring process and therefore your unemployment rate is higher because it takes you longer to find a job. It takes you longer to find a job so you're willing to take one that you're overqualified for and paid less than you should be because it's taking you so long to find one. This is an incredibly tight story. It's supported by hundreds and hundreds of papers in research studies economics and it all is like a clear mechanism through our labor market. Now, when you contrast that with Someone who says no one wants to hire a white guy right now, there's no there's no evidence, there's no through line, there's no wide result that you would see, and there's also really no diversity at the top of American companies. So even in even as late as 2021, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, who gets reports of demographic data from every company with more than 100 people in the U.S., just two percent of senior officers and managers were black men. If it were happening writ large that white men were being passed over, it'd have to show up somewhere and some broader statistic.
2: So then where does that leave the white men who do feel that they've been passed over or are even being told that they are being passed over and they have that sort of ingrained? How do we handle that? Where does that leave them?
4: let's take it on face value. You were passed over for a black man. You didn't get the job you wanted because you were a white man and they wanted to hire a black man. That action necessitates that black men were underrepresented by your employer or the employer you were aspiring to, which means this whole process is a function of discrimination against black people. They would not go in and pass over someone more qualified to hire someone who is less qualified unless they had a deep history of discrimination that they were trying to correct on the back end in frankly, a relatively lazy way. So even though you are holding the short straw, it's still the same problem that we know exists, which is that black people are discriminated against. And your group has been pretty fortunate, but you got the short straw. I mean, take the blood pumping through your veins and just pretend you're an economist and ignore it for a second, and just put on (laughs) this like cold-hearted view. It is grossly inefficient in our labor market to pay people less and hire them less because of the color of their skin. And you might be insulated from that historically, but you're. You're never fully insulated from the discrimination that affects other people. This inefficiency affects all of us. And when you're holding the short straw, feeling passed over, you're just feeling that discrimination in another way. And you should be mad at how weak of a policy it is to, at the end of the hiring decision, to choose a black guy over a white guy instead of the total lack of response against this type of well-documented discrimination that we've had for 30 years.
2: And we are going to leave it there, Catherine. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Catherine Ann Edwards, a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, labor economist, and an independent policy consultant. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. This has been an aggressive summer. Life-threatening heat domes, biblical floods, persistent wildfires that have been spreading smoke throughout North America. It's enough to make you wonder, have we hit that climate change tipping point? Bloomberg Opinion columnist Faye Flan covers science and she hosts the Follow the Science podcast and joins me now. Faye, is this it? Have we reached that tipping point?
0: Well, in some ways, the bad news is no. That means it could be, if we do hit a tipping point, then things could change. You know, that could actually accelerate changes in, you know, drought, rainfall, uh, heating. So, the scientists who study climate tipping points say there is a distinction between extremes, which we are seeing, and a tipping point. But it seems to
2: be happening so fast. Could it could it actually happen faster than this? You just mentioned acceleration.
0: And there are ways that that could happen if, say, um, the Amazon rainforest gets so dry that parts of it start to catch on fire and that can actually start... A, uh, a feedback loop, what the scientists sometimes call a positive feedback loop, though its effect on us wouldn't be positive, but that the fire would feed more dryness, which would feed more fire and CO2 would be released, which would accelerate global warming. So you have these feedback loops. The same thing can happen when glaciers collapse and and you see a lot of ice melting, that then there's less sunlight. Um, sunlight is absorbed, less of it is reflected back. So they are looking at a number of systems that could create a big, uh, big tipping point where things accelerate more than they are now. So is that what
2: scientists are most worried about, those feedback loops, or are they watching regions?
0: I think different scientists are looking at different things. I talked to some that look at these sort of global scale tipping points. Mm-hmm. And they pointed to what they call tipping elements, you know, things that could, could change past a point where, you know, you have sort of small changes, small changes, and then one small change that starts a very big change you know that that precipitates a big effect and then I've talked to others who look at at more regional scale tipping points either islands that have become completely deforested um, one of them looked at at some models and also at at Easter Island which had a really nice ecosystem that collapsed and at lakes where there were th- that had been full of fish that became dead zones.
2: How do you uh, explain this to somebody who maybe doesn't believe in the climate change concept? How do you explain to them that this is not just a weather event, this is climate?
0: For one, we've we have measurements that show that the temperatures are climbing, that they are higher, that that they haven't always been this hot. Um, so we do see temperatures climbing a lot since the beginning of the twentieth century. That can vary regionally, so there are some areas, just like the summer uh, where I live in Rhode Island, it hasn't been particularly hot, uh, but most of the country is hot. I just, uh, you know, if you happen to live in a place that's not getting unusually hot, then lucky you. But I would also say that Earth's climate has changed dramatically over Earth's history, more dramatically than what we're seeing now. In fact, we've had huge, huge upheavals, but for most of that time, there were no humans and we've had some ice ages and what they call interglacials that have been radically colder and warmer when there were humans but they were nomadic people hunted and you know we hadn't settled down in cities and started farming and that's when people become vulnerable because we have to have a stable climate to feed ourselves and we have a big population and since people really started settling down and farming we haven't had any big climate upheavals so we could be affected in a big way yeah the earth has gone through big things before we were around but yeah. i'm not sure that's real that really matters
2: faye Flem is a bloomberg opinion columnist covering science and she hosts the follow the science podcast and that does it for this week's bloomberg opinion we're produced by eric Molo, and you can find all of these columns on the bloomberg terminal We're also available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines are just ahead. I'm Amy Morris, and this is Bloomberg.